Hey, I'm Steph Farrar. And I'm Sam Farrar. And this is a job fair podcast. A job cast. Where you shop for work. <laughs> it's work shopping. Welcome to this week's episode of Work Shopping. Our guest today is dear friend Simran Bajwan, who's a very successful film and TV writer here in LA. She's written for various network shows like Royal Pains, Chicago Med, Conviction, and The Good Doctor. The twists and turns are clear from a barista who hated coffee to Contra Costa DA to Hollywood assistant with an 85% pay cut to slowly working her way up the call sheet as a writer. Simran currently is co-executive producer on NBC's hit drama, Manifest. She will also be my and Sam's active attorney after finding out she still holds her bar card. Please enjoy Simran Baidwan. So, hello. <laughs> Hi. Welcome to Workshopping. So nice to have you here. <laughs> yeah. What did you want to be when you were a kid? I thought... Honestly, I thought I was either going to be an astronaut or the president. Wow. <laughs> That's a great I really, answer. I, I think I saw that um, that movie Space Camp. It was like a teen drama in the 80s. And I was like, I would love to go to Space Camp. I could be an astronaut. Why mm-hmm. not? And then, yeah, then I, uh, the other thing was like, well, how come there's never been a female president? And I remember, um, again, when I was really young, Geraldine Ferraro was running for VP I think with Mondale. With Mondale. They lost, but it was like the first person I knew as a woman who was running for such high public office. And I was like, oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. uh, fine. How old? And I remember looking up how old you had to be. I think you had to be a minimum age of 35. I was like, that's old. I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) How old were you when you had these young aspirations? Elementary school, for sure, elementary school, school, because my mom remembers very early on because that was. I mean, I'm probably jumping ahead of here, but I was like, oh, well, how do you become president? And then I looked up that so many presidents had, were formerly lawyers. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, um, I guess that's what you do. You become a lawyer and then somehow you become president. Like, oh, that may, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> what, yeah, is there a pretty high percentage of presidents were former lawyers? Is that a- I think they were. I mean, again, this is my, yeah. me recollecting my <laughs> probably eight or nine year old research from the Encyclopedia Britannica or whatever we were using back then. Well, a legal understanding of how the world works <laughs> makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's crazy we don't have one yet, by the way, a woman one, but one president. It is crazy, but, you know. Hopefully soon. Kamala's yeah, there, are. which is great. Yeah. I know. Gosh, Simran, we've known each other for so right, long. We met with like, the kids when mm-hmm. Vesper and Sage were two. Were two. Yeah. In preschool. So now we know what you wanted to be when you were a little girl. So what did the path look like sort of after that? I mean, I we cert- I know where you're from and sort of a little bit about where you um, where you grew up and stuff. But what did life look like at home? Where are you from? What's family life look like as a young girl? Um, my parents are both from India, you know, so they're mm-hmm. immigrants. I'm first generation here, born and raised in the Bay Area. So I've pretty much lived my entire life in California, up and down the coast. And I grew up. You know, I have my brother and sister, and we grew up in a small town, but I didn't have a lot of friends that were Indian. My friends that were Indian were my family. Extended family and family friends are very, very instrumental, I think, for me, culturally. You met people at temple, at the Gurdwara. My family is sick, um, and so we would go to the temple, which is called a Gurdwara, and we would meet other families, and that's how you got to know other Indian kids, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in San Jose, which had a lot of uh, Southeast Asians. And then we moved to Fremont, which is now a huge Southeast Asian hub. But at the time, there was nobody. Like, I mean, we moved to that town. My handprints are still in the sidewalk outside the mall when the mall opened. No so way. we Amazing. moved when it was like fresh land out there. Man. So I was like the only child of color in, you know, my first grade. And I remember just thinking like, this is so wild because I came from a place where I was like, oh yeah, I have lots of Indian family. And so even though it was only half an hour away. So there was a big uh, difference. I noticed that right away when I was probably in first grade. My parents were, again, wanted us, I think really were making sure that we didn't lose our culture and our heritage. So I did cultural dance and I did, you know, we would go to temple on the weekends and then I would do soccer and musicals and like all sorts of other stuff that every other kid did. So it was this, this always straddling two worlds it felt like Mm -hmm. and my parents were pretty conservative you know they were very uh 
what we would call tiger parents. You know, there was a <laughs> list on, on our refrigerator about you couldn't get, if you got a B, you had to miss certain activities and wow. season oh, wow. no activities. I mean, it was a whole thing. Um, so whether that's why we were very, my siblings and I were very driven academically, you know, perhaps that was part of it. And I actually, as I went to junior high and high school, got to meet kids who were Japanese and Korean and Chinese and Vietnamese. And so we kind of, I think, bonded being the children of immigrants Mm -hmm. and kind of having those same maybe pressures from parents, but then also had same interests. We were like, who wants to go see Depeche Mode? And, you know, who wants to like go to round table, you know? So we, we bonded over those commonalities of being the product of immigrants. And it was always a foregone conclusion growing up that we were going to college. So I remember when I graduated from high school and people were throwing all these graduation parties and some of them were, I'm sure, pretty lavish and some of them, you know, and I was like, oh, are we going to have one? And my mom's like, what, why are they celebrating? Like, it's, she just thought of it as it's the end of a school year and everybody's going to go to college next yeah. year. I was like, no, no, no. I'm like, it's a momentous milestone in people's lives because some people will go to work and some people might join the military or they might do different things. And it was just so beyond their recognition of like, what, what do you mean they're not going to college? It was just, you know, it was such a foregone <laughs> yeah. conclusion for them. Um, and so that was always instilled in us. And it was something that I wanted to do. And right. because I had been so confined with my family upbringing and a very conservative upbringing, when I got accepted to UC San Diego, and I looked at all the schools I got accepted into, and it was the furthest place <laughs> away from Fremont, California. I was like, sign me up. Sight unseen. No East Coast? <laughs> I did apply to the East Coast, but, you know, this was still, I was got to pay in-state tuition. Mm-hmm. Right. Of course, I don't know why I thought I could get into Princeton or something, but I didn't. So I was like, great, I'll stay in state. And San Diego was right by the border. I'm going there. Like, this is Bay Area, San Diego. And I just felt like it was someplace that my parents couldn't, you know, in Berkeley, they could be there in like 40 minutes. They could just roll up and knock on the door. I was like, or God forbid, they would put me to commute from home. You know, I was like, oh, no, 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 that's not happening. What did your parents do again? My dad was an engineer. He was engineer. trained as an engineer. He worked for IBM in the Bay Area. That's the first thing that brought him to the Bay Area. Ah, okay. And then he um, did a lot of, you know, after he worked at IBM as an engineer, then he moved on to different companies in the pre-Silicon Valley and even worked mm-hmm. in, you know, the foundation of when the Silicon Valley was actually starting. So it would be different kind of startups or water purification or God knows what, some sort of computer chip processing. Like, sure. I don't even remember. And my mom, you know, she had her master's in English, but she married my dad and immigrated here and had a kid within a year. Mm-hmm. So she never really got to use her degree. So for a lot of times she would do, I think she was a sales clerk at like Sears at one point. She worked as a bank teller. You know, she sold, she got a real estate license and did real estate. Yeah. Um, so she did a, an amalgamation of things, but she was also trying to raise three kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it wasn't until like, I think, my young, it was me, my brother, and my sister. My sister was probably, I think, like in fourth or fifth grade that she went back to work full time, you know, because then it was, then we became the latchkey kids, right? Then it was me being able to take the bus from, I took the school bus from the junior high that dropped you off at the elementary school, picked up my younger brother and sister. We walked, you know, four blocks and caught the city bus. And then that dropped us off at our house and you know, look after your brother and sister until five o'clock. When you're in this age, just while we're talking about this age, in relation to what you're doing now, are you writing short stories and and developing ideas? You know, I was was the editor-in-chief of my school newspaper. There we go. But that was, you know... That was really it. I mean, I didn't know. I was not doing like creative writing. I wasn't doing any any of that kind of stuff. You know, it was really like I really hunkered down. Even when I was in high school, I was like, maybe I should take a psychology class. Not because I was interested in psychology, because I thought it would look good on, you know, my transcript or something. I was so narrowly focused. I don't feel like I really came into my own in as far as doing things that I loved or that were interesting to me until college, you know, where Uh I felt like I had a little bit more freedom. I had accomplished the goal set forth by my parents. And when I went to college, it was like, oh my gosh, I get to live on my own. I get to stay up however late I want, eat whatever I want. And I wasn't, I was never one of those kids who drank or did drugs or anything. Mm -hmm. I was so straight laced. Mm -hmm. I didn't have my first drink till the end of my freshman year of college. Mm -hmm. That experience right there, that first year or or two years when you're not with parents Mm -hmm. and living on your own and figuring life out is number one reason why you go. Yeah, it was so huge. And I really felt like I started coming into my own as a person, Mm -hmm. you know, at least the beginning, you know, foundations of it. You're still like 18 years old. But that was the first time where I was like, oh, 
I can take whatever classes I want. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. And I failed some classes, you know, <laughs> but I also got to take like things that had nothing to do with my major mm-hmm. just because they were interesting. Yeah. You know, I learned to scuba dive. I learned, you know, all sorts In of college? fun stuff. Yeah. See, well, that's an advantage of going yeah. to San Diego so on what, the coast. What's the first class you take that's like, oh, I could do some writing? Like, what, was, was there something that caught your eye? I ended up being a double major in college mm-hmm. and I was a communications major with a emphasis in film and TV. And then I was a poli sci major with mm-hmm. emphasis in pre-law. So I got to, I was really interested in pre-law and I studied international politics and, you know, all sorts of governments. And then the communication was that that's what fed my whole, you know, interest in film and TV and like what that world was. I remember taking, I had a class that was completely about dissecting Pulp Fiction. Our only, Mm -hmm. our only textbook was the screenplay to Pulp Fiction. We're like, this is brilliant. This is a genius class. And so you're writing papers and you're really Mm -hmm. analyzing shots and you're really thinking about like the scene work. And by then I'd already studied like Sergio Leone films Mm -hmm. and all this other stuff. So I'm like, Oh, I get where Tarantino got Mm -hmm. his inspirations from. And it, for me, that was like, and I would write papers and do stuff. And these professors would be like, no, this is really smart. This is really good. You understand. And so that was the first time I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. But I still didn't think that mm-hmm. that could be a profession for me. Like, I really thought that, you know, by the time I graduated, and I'm trying to think about next steps because I sure as shit wasn't going to move back to Fremont. Sorry, I swore. <laughs> no, we're, we're sorry. We got, like, we're I got sorry, mom. back in with my parents. <laughs> so I was like, I need to either get a job or like go to graduate school. So right. um, I was like, well, I'm good at the school stuff. Let's figure out school. But some people were applying to film school. And I really thought that was for George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. It was for mm-hmm. white dudes. I didn't even know women who did it. Forget people of color who did it. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? Like, that that's not a that's not a career right that's not a job that's not an option for me <laughs> mm-hmm. is what i legitimately thought and you know my parents i think were like horrified at the thought they're like what is that and i was like i'm also thinking about law school like, yeah yeah do that law school yeah. law school's great go do that and what was the transition like from norcal to socal you are kind of born and bred to hate all things southern california being a northern california sure of course like it's and you know and especially la so the fact that i live in la now is just hilarious to many of my <laughs> family members it's so good but here yeah, what are you like, talking you're about like, socal whatever <laughs> yeah. you know they you think they're all you know spicoli ever you think everybody yeah. <laughs> came out of fast times <laughs> and but i love san diego was great sandy i mean it was just I, I think I lived in like reef flip flops for four years between that and Birkenstocks. That's all I wore for four years <laughs> yeah. and probably now still do. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so it was, it was just a really, it was a more relaxed way of life and pace mm-hmm. of life. And I even noticed that in when I started, I mean, I ended up going to law school down mm-hmm. in San Diego and I noticed it even within the culture there. People worked hard, but they still enjoyed more of a work life balance. Mm-hmm. And I had my family and everybody I knew in the Bay area, Everybody was either an engineer or a doctor. I mean, it's yeah. very stereotypical for Indian people, That's mm-hmm. but that's straight up what I grew up with. Everybody right. was an engineer or a doctor. And they worked really hard, and everything was about, you know, it felt more of a rat race in the mm-hmm. Bay Area. Maybe that's because, again, I lived in the Silicon Valley. But in Southern California, it was like, oh, no, we're just going to go to the beach. We're going to hang out. We'll have yeah. a picnic, you know. What did you do in your, year, your gap year between grad school and, and undergrad? I stayed in San Diego, but I worked and I worked like just random jobs. I, when I was on campus, I was a barista before there, before there was a Starbucks, before I even knew what, probably what it was called, a barista, but there wasn't a place on campus called the Grove Cafe. So I learned how to make layered lattes. And, I don't even know what know. they were called back yeah. then, right? It was just like drip yeah. coffee you, and just some like, all right, milk. great. And learn how to make a lot of foam. Yep. <laughs> without, without burning yourself, that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was it was fun to you know to just work with other kids and also like working at a cafe. Like I, there was a guy who I worked with who was a drag queen, and that's what he did on wow. the weekends. He mm-hmm. performed, and I didn't even know that was a thing. Mm-hmm. So I met so many people outside of probably my social circle in college that expanded the world for me. Mm-hmm. And I met musicians, and I made, met like you know mixed media artists and. It was a, I felt like, again, that was another part of my opening up as, as a human being, like getting to know different people and getting to know different, you know, what, what things people were interested in, frankly. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So that gap here, well, I, I worked, oh my gosh, I worked, I worked for a telemarketing company oh. where Ooh. we all sat in, you know, on these folding chairs where we, um, there used to be a drug which is no longer approved by the FDA. It was a weight loss drug called Fen-Fen, Fen-Fen. which was like Fentermine and 
some, it's basically speed. Okay. Uh It was just legalized speed. And so we would all sit around the phones and it would play on a local radio station, the ad for it. And people, when the rate, when the number would come, then the phone calls would come in. And our job was to answer the phones and tell people how great this product was and how much weight you're going to lose and sign them up for appointments with the doctor. I don't even know if they met with real doctors. I mean, it's so horrible. I don't, you know, you're just like out of college. You're like, whatever, I'll just, I'll do whatever. And it was commission-based. So the more people you got who came in for an appointment, you probably got $5. If they signed up for the program, you got $10. So I did that while I was, you know, I took, I took actually a paralegal certification class. You know, I was just doing other stuff at night. I was like, just trying to get some money so I could go to Europe basically for the next summer and backpack for a while. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, like we, but again, when you're out of college, I mean, we were, I have friends who were like, they would sign up for all sorts of like science experiments, you know, on campus. There was huge, I mean, you see San Diego is a amazing medical school mm-hmm. and but they had all sorts of stuff that people i'm sure clinical trials people were signing up for they're like oh 300 bucks i'll no do it problem. i don't know what you're being injected with what they're oh doing my with my dna i'm sh- so many kids did so many whacked out things my body for science oh, for that's money scary. Yes. that just yes. makes me think of ghostbusters totally so <laughs> um <laughs> oh my god that's so crazy i love i love those those youthful years of just like Whatever, no fear. Like I'll do whatever I can for a buck, so I can go to backpack in Europe. I worked at No Fear. Did you really? Did you remember that clothing company? Yes, I remember the. They, I remember the yeah. bumper yeah. sticker. At, at UTC, UTC Mall. I was. I was yep. at. I was at No Fear, and I sold you know a bunch of <laughs> skater and surf clothing. <laughs> Oh my god, I love it. So now you're at law school. Okay, you've got this like fun gap year with like nine different jobs. And now you're at law school. Is it like, okay, the breaks are on, it's time to study? Or were you able to like really like enjoy yourself? Was it quick? I studied two years, a years? lot. Yeah. yeah. The first yeah. year, I mean, they have a thing where Oh, no. First year, they scare you to death. Second year, they work you to death. And the third year, they bore you to death. It's something it's something in that regards. But nice. yeah, the first year I was, it was the first time where I felt like I really like studied very hard. You know, undergrad was great. It was fun. It was easy. I mean, not, but comparatively easy. Mm-hmm. But I felt like in law school, the other thing at my law school was if you didn't feel they uh, dropped the first, the bottom 10% of the class at the beginning of the first, at the end of the first year. So at the end of first year, you get your grades. And if there's a hundred people, Numbers ninety to one hundred, bye bye. They're they're, they're basically gone out. You know, wow. yeah, they they fail them out. Wow. And so you don't, you know. So I didn't want to be in the bottom of the class. So I really I studied very hard. I got really good grades. I ended up joining the law review um, after my first year, which is you know a prestigious kind of uh, publication that every every law school has. And then the following year after that, I like. After I got that first year, I did well my second year, but I kind of felt like I was, I coasted a little bit. But then I became an editor on the Law Review. And then, like, during that second, third year, I was just like, this is a party. I'm going to be a lawyer now. Yeah. You know, this is it. <laughs> and that was exciting. You were excited to, to, to be a lawyer. I was. I was. I clerked, you know, at a, at a civil law firm after, you know, one summer. And, you know, they wine and dine you and stuff, but that yeah. was not, it was very mergers and acquisitions and stuff Mm -hmm. was very boring it was very dry and the thing that got me most interested i loved criminal law and then i sort of started doing internships at the da's office down there and it was just so interesting and fascinating to me and i was like well that's what i'm gonna do Mm -hmm. i'm i'm gonna graduate from here and i'm gonna go look for a job at a prosecutorial agency whether Mm -hmm. that was a da a city attorney doj something like that uh, what would you say? What's the word? Prosecutorial. Prosecutorial. Yeah, prosecutor. Yeah. Okay. All right. I was because I was going to ask <laughs> if you gravitated to a defense, defense or, or prosecution. Uh, if, if that's even something you have to do early on, or if you can switch. I don't know much about the. You system, can totally so. switch. You can totally switch. But I mean, it just I ended up going to the DA's office because that's where I'd first got my first internship, and I really liked you know what they were doing there, and so that was kind of where I. I had to slant towards. Sure. And I think that there are people who are probably more minded for prosecutors and more minded who are defense attorneys. Um, it's Yeah, that's that's where I ended up. Okay. So after law school, you know, I did some other odd jobs and <laughs> traveled to your, again, like it was look, as again. I was looking for a placement. Uh, yes. Because there were civil firms who were like, oh, great, come back and work for us. And I was like, I don't want to work for you. Mm-hmm. And it was really, you know, getting a government job was a little bit more difficult. And then I ended up getting a job um, at the Contra Costa District Attorney's Office up in the Bay Area. So I moved back up to the Bay Area. 
So how was that? How was moving back? Like, may, you've made mom and dad proud, and you've got the degree. <laughs> yeah, right? probably how much was more it calm moving back now. to the Bay Area? By then, actually, my parents had moved to Phoenix. Okay. They had kind of semi-retired, uh, bought mm-hmm. their own business, and left and moved to Phoenix, where I didn't grow up there. So we would go visit them, but it wasn't going home the right. same way it is. So going back up to the Bay Area, I actually was super fun because I moved to the East Bay, like up to, by Berkeley, a little mm-hmm. town called Emeryville, which is kind of intersected. It's squished between Oakland and um, Berkeley. Everybody knows it because it's the home base of Pixar animation. Oh. I lived like three blocks away from Pixar. Their campus w- looked like the coolest university campus you'd ever been to and i was an adult i was like i'm making money i have mm-hmm. my own apartment i can kind of do whatever i wanted and you know i could go into the city whenever i wanted i would go down to berkeley and hang out with friends so it was it was my first time being gainfully employed and you know not having to rely on parents for like hey can you loan me some money mm-hmm. hey yeah. you know like <laughs> and and mind you i had I had so much credit card debt, like yeah. every foolish, you know, college student. So, but I, I worked my butt off to like pay it off slowly but surely. I'm sure, you know, twenty five percent, you know, whatever APR, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. probably higher. <laughs> but it was it was super fun to be an adult and be in that world. It, but mm-hmm. it was it's it was hard because they really. I mean, I was like, oh, I'm a lawyer. That's so cool. But then I was like, oh, wait these are real people's lives you're dealing with now. Like it was yeah. really, they th- throw you into the deep end because again, it's a, it's a public entity and you're working for, you know, the people and there is such a caseload that needs to be dealt with on a daily basis. So right away you're, I mean, I think I was there not even two weeks and I did my first trial. They're like, okay, wow. here you wow. go. And I was like, wow, do I remember all the evidence code and all that stuff oh <laughs> that goodness. I learned? This is not like glamorous Ali McBeal. What was it? Do you remember right? what the case was? What was the case? I do. It was a DUI case. Mm-hmm. I think the guy got pulled over for weaving or, you oh, know, yeah. that's usually how most DUI cases are detected. Yeah. You're either, you're breaking the law in some way in the sense of speeding violation, mm-hmm. right? right. You're, you've run a stop sign or you're speeding or you're weaving or, you know. So, yeah, and it was, and there was this guy and he was contesting it. You have the policeman who pulled him over and then you talk to the criminologist about the breathalyzer tests and talking about the science of that and you know but then i remember picking a jury and like you know it's very performative Mm -hmm. in an interesting way because you have to analyze people and try to make some kind of connection with them you get to ask questions it's called voir dire where you ask Mm -hmm. you know your jury panel questions to see you know who you want to keep or not keep but they're also judging you so i'm trying to as much as i'm asking questions being like do I, what's my vibe on this person? Are they understanding me or do I think I will click with them? You know, do, do I think that they're going to buy my, my version of the events versus the defense's version of the events? Um, and then everything you do, like the questions you ask, like when you object to people, when you're, you know, the defendant actually took the stand in that case. So you want to ask hard questions, but do you want to be so hard that they think you're being mean? You know, mm. so you have to like really temper a lot of things. And then you have to, you have to really, weave and think on your feet because sometimes things will come out that you didn't know were going to come out you know again the judge could be sometimes judges are just in a bad mood and they Mm -hmm. want to teach young lawyers a lesson and you know might just be a stickler for things that maybe ordinarily would pass in other cases so there's a lot of a lot of that going on but yeah i mean opening statements and closing statements were the best because that's where you get to talk and you get to you know, craft a narrative. And I say, I put all that Mm -hmm. in those, in those contextual words is crafting narratives because that's what I do now. So for me, it was like, I didn't know at the time that those things, I thought I was gonna be a lawyer. I thought I was gonna be a career prosecutor. This is it. Great. You know, I'll get a pension when I'm like 55, (laughs) you know, (laughs) retire, retire to Monterey. It'll be all good. But of course that's the part that you, uh, you know, you were attracted to is the the performance of it, you know, on the story. The weaving of of the storytelling and how you're going to craft this narrative to work in your favor and, and in, and and in the favor of the law, I suppose. Yeah. And like every, every case is different. It's like telling a new story. Every case is different. It doesn't matter that I went to trial with like, you know, however many 30 DUIs, but every one is different. And it wasn't just that you were doing petty theft. You were doing Mm -hmm. robberies. You were doing, you know, sometimes violent, very heartbreaking, Mm -hmm. violent cases. Mm -hmm. You were sometimes, I was in the juvenile unit. I had a, Mm -hmm. you know, a murder case. You're just dealing with so many different things, but every case you opened up had a new setting, had a new cast of characters, had a new, had a new motivation, had all sorts of different stuff. And so you, how do you shape that story into a way that you can 
I say sell, but you do have to no, essentially sell to yeah. a jury to get them engaged and understand and believe your version of the events. I have so many jurors who have fallen asleep. I've seen judges fall asleep. I mean, it's wow. just banana pants. You know, so all that, st- that kind of Ally McBeal stuff 100% happens. Wow, that um, is so fascinating how you just wove <laughs> the two careers That's like, amazing. so beautifully. Ooh. Musical break time. Can you hear that, Ice? Uh, this particular episode, we're going to do a possibly a giveaway. So keep your ears open. Maybe we ask a question on the next commercial break. And if you answer it correctly and email us in time, maybe you get something. Maybe. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast because it really helps us. Please. Okay, anyway, back to the interview. Now, are the CSIs and the all the sort of crime television shows that were dominated by, when did that start? Like, when's Law & Order? Law & Order for sure started before the... My, my criminal procedure professor would show us segments of Law & Order. Right. Because they were actually really good about... The great thing about Law & Order is that sometimes the cops got it wrong, mm-hmm. which I thought was so important, right? It yeah. was like, oh, here, you did this whole thing, and then they would have a motion be like, well, that's a Fourth Amendment violation, you know, and that was a search and seizure violation. Or you didn't Mirandize the defendant, and so you have to throw out, you know, his confession. Yeah. And you're like, what? And I'm like, no, that's legitimate. That's real. And so that's why our, our professors in law school would actually show we'll us. Show like, yeah. These are perfect examples of how... <sighs> you know, rights are being violated. Right. So that was really great. And CSI had just come out. I want to say the original one had come out. And so every defense attorney had some kind of blow up that said CSI on it. I was like, there's not going to be fingerprint (laughs) evidence on a DUI case. There's not going to, you know, you're not going to have forensic hairs, you know, on a guy who stole a candy bar. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know, so we would, we would have to then do these preliminary motions, be like, I need to see all of your, exhibits or things you're going to show because I know that CSI shit's going to pop up. Yep. I'm like, no, you cannot. <laughs> because everybody did. Everybody wanted the blue light. They wanted to see yeah. exactly what they saw on TV. And mm-hmm. it was so not as sexy as that. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a moment that happened as you're, you're practicing law that there was a spark in you that said, I think it's time for a change, a, a draw to film and TV to moving to Los Angeles. Are you married at that point yet what does that transition look like i mean i always loved film and tv i would i was one of those people who would wake up on whatever the thursday morning that the oscars would be nominated to mm-hmm. hear oscar nominations mm-hmm. i mean it was i have no affiliation to hollywood at this point like zero i mean i still have <laughs> no affiliation mm-hmm. to the probably the film world being a tv <laughs> writer but it was just it was so exciting to me. I thought, this is so great. And then I would make my list and I would go to the movies and I would see everything. Foreign films, short films. I just was so absorbed that I would watch television. It was just... And then I would write short stories. Sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night and Vince, my now husband, would be like, what are you doing? I was like, I just had to write something. And it would be a short story. It would be something that would just spark my interest. And then I would shove it in a drawer and that would be the end of it. Mm-hmm. I just loved that world. And again, it was just as a fan, right? Purely mm-hmm. from admiration. But again, never really thinking that was something that I could do for a living. And then I think it was... I'd been a prosecutor for a little over four years, and I actually started interviewing with some private firms. I'm like, I got I to gotta change. I don't know if I can do this for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, well, great. You can come here, and we'll give you all this money, but you're going to have to do like, you know, 2,000 billable hours a year. And I was like, that's just unconscionable. That's like, you know, working 80-hour <laughs> weeks. And and I was like, this is, this is, there's got to be something else that I just can't, this can't be it. This can't mm-hmm. be the rest of what I want to do. And at the time I had a, we had a friend who was a junior executive at CBS and he was like, you should come here. You love film. You love TV. You would be great here. You would be do so well. And I was like, what am I going to do there? And he was like, just come, come get a job and just be in this world and you'll figure it out. And to me, that was just so frightening. You know, I, I've been a lawyer. I have like... <laughs> $250,000 in debt from like law school. You know, I'm just like, what? What do I do? But I knew I was so dissatisfied that I had to try something. I had to do something else. And so I took a sick day and I flew to LA and I interviewed for a job to be an assistant. 
And the guy was like, you have a law degree. I was like, yeah. He's like, why do you want to do this? I said, because I want to try something different. Mm-hmm. I said, because I've done this other job and this is something that I'm really interested in. So hire me because you know I'm an adult and I want to try something different. And I'm not going to bail in three weeks, you know, because, because <laughs> whatever, because I got a right. job on a, a movie or something. And he's like, okay, fine. And, you know, it was really scary, but it was so, at that point, I had just been married a year. Yeah, Vince is my husband, and we met in undergrad. Okay. And he actually went to law school mm-hmm. as well, and he actually became a DA as well. And he still and, is, right? Um, yeah, and yep. he's still a prosecutor. He still mm-hmm. works with California DOJ. And so we were we had this great life. We lived in San Francisco, and we were in the marina, and we would walk, you know, to happy hours on Friday. It was like, it was a good think Mm -hmm. but he was like you're so dissatisfied with your work he said i remember because we would sometimes carpool to work and he's like and you would you would cry like driving to work or you know he was like you would be so upset he's like just go he's like we don't have kids we don't have a mortgage we don't have a dog like go (laughs) and try it because i don't want you then in five years or ten years to feel resentment that you didn't go do this Mm -hmm. amazing and he said but i'm gonna stay here because i like my job (laughs) But don't so make you me go leave. to LA and see if you like it, and if, if you, you really like it, then we'll figure it out. Um, awesome. So I, I did, and you know, I, we had really good friends from undergrad who lived in LA, and so they were like, "We have a guest room, come stay here." And I moved to West Hollywood with a couple of suitcases and stayed in their guest room and started working on the Fox lot for a TV show called Judging Amy back then, um, and I was an assistant, answering phones and fetching grilled cheese and eighty five percent pay cut, and I could not have been happier. <laughs> How you just explained the legal system is so weird to me because I've always, I've always thought of uh, lawyers, doctors as black and white jobs. We talk about it mm-hmm. a lot um, as it's a yes or no like type of job. Like uh, I'm in mm-hmm. music and you know you're writing. They're, they're not black and white jobs. You can they're a, a subject to opinion. But like the way you've just described the legal system. <laughs> It's sort of like that. It's not black and white. 100%. Like, when we first sat down to talk about this, I thought you were leaving a black and white job to go to mm-hmm. a something that's colorful or you know mm-hmm. crazy and opinionated. But you were literally, like, it's basically the same thing. Like, um, yeah, I mean, you way. have facts. You can't make up facts. No, no, right? of course. There is the law, and the law is, sure. it does seem black and white. But mm-hmm. the reality is, is that life is... We live it in the gray. Yeah. Nobody lives in black and white world, right? It's, it's, life is all in the gray. Mm-hmm. And I think that as I understand that even more now as an adult, as a parent, you know, so many things as you just evolve and change and grow. And I think, you know, maybe initially when I started as a DA, I was probably, you know, thought I was wearing the white hat and, you know, mm-hmm. th- that whole thing. And then I think as I got into it, realizing, no, there's so much more to it. There are, there is so much more understanding that needs to happen. And, you know, I feel about it now, like having actually subsequently done pro bono defense cases Mm -hmm. after I moved to LA and still, I still have my bar card and I I have an, I have an active defense case right now. (laughs) I do. I'm doing a criminal defense case (sighs) pro bono right now, but I, have so much more understanding. And and I always had appreciation that everybody needs counsel. Everybody should have equal representation as far as, you know, making sure that their rights are being upheld. I just think that I didn't, I didn't have the same perhaps empathy that I, that I do now, to Mm -hmm. be honest. Mm -hmm. I think I I thought it was really like, well, you broke the law, like whatever, like, you know, and, and there's, there's so much more, that happens in people's lives and stories that really shape what their needs are actually in in the criminal justice system. So, yeah. I mean, I see the way the criminal justice system probably has not changed the way it should, and that's why I'm I'm a big advocate for criminal justice reform mm-hmm. now. And also, and I see where it's not should not be just on judges and not just on prisons and jo- not just on defense attorneys. It has to come from the police officer side. It has to come from the prosecutorial side. You know, they have to work in conjunction with each other. So. For the next few, what year is this that your uh, your first assistant job? In two thousand four. Two thousand four. So you're like yeah. a full fledged adult. Yeah. Ready to to move forward okay. to move up. Right. So how wait how long did it take you from this living in a guest house, uh, trying this thing out and you're not sure about it to being like oh I'm done no see ya I'm not going to do this anymore not going to do the legal thing anymore. Mm-hmm. It was probably I want to say. Th- 
three months or four months okay. where I was I was just so happy. And Vince would fly down or yeah. like I would fly up, you know, Southwest Airlines, you would mm-hmm. get your $39 seat and fly. <laughs> and um, yeah, very quickly he was like, you are infinitely more happy, you know, oh, that's awesome. you can see that. being poor in LA. Great. And so <laughs> he very quickly started looking for a job. Mm-hmm. And so it took him till about April of 2005 to finally move because, you know, he was he wanted to stay as a prosecutor mm-hmm. and he looked California DOJ so he had to go through a lot of interviewing process and by then we had rented a, an apartment of our own in the building right next door to my friends <laughs> nice. so <laughs> so I was like okay great I already know West Hollywood I know yeah. this neighborhood um, right right around the corner from Barney's Beanery if anybody knows of course oh my God. <laughs> in West Hollywood Santa Monica and La Cienega I lived mm-hmm. right there for many years. Um, then he moved down in April, and of course, as soon as he moved down, and we're like, "This is great!" My show got canceled. Awesome. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> welcome to LA. <laughs> well, yeah, welcome to LA. And so the show got canceled, and then I'm like, "Oh my god, I'm unemployed!" Like, mm-hmm. oh, this is this is it. This is yeah. the hustle. You you quickly realize that you have signed up for a life of freelance. Mm-hmm. You know, right. wanting to work in this industry is, you know, you can have a job one day, it'll be gone tomorrow, and you could be unemployed for two weeks, two months, two years. You just mm-hmm. don't know. But back then, I think we were still, people were emailing stuff, but you were still sending resumes through fax machines. Totally. God. <laughs> and, and luckily, I had met enough people and worked with a lot of people that my resume came through a fax machine and a guy who had just also, you know, <laughs> you know, had to find a new job after judging Amy was working in an office. And he's like, I know Simran. And he took my resume and gave it to, you know, the head of somebody else. So I worked on a show called Night Stalker. I was an mm-hmm. assistant to... This incredible director, producer, Dan Sackheim, who is still to this day an incredible friend and um, mentor. And he was, even though he was a director and I kind of wanted to be a writer at that point, I very, knew very much I started writing more. Mm-hmm. I just needed a job. Yeah. And he was great. He was like, all right. It's like, come on board. So he would take me to production meetings and I would go to set. And so I just learned a lot more about the craft of TV making, you know, and I think so much of that is so important to the craft of writing itself to learn how the sausage is made. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was really great. And then that show got canceled. (laughs) And then he went to a show called House, where Mm -hmm. he had worked before. And he said, don't take another job. I want you to come with me. I'm just working out my deal. And then by, you know, that January, he had come to this show called House and House had just it was in the middle of season two and it was just starting to hit its stride as far as being you know this really I mean it was critically acclaimed but now like viewers were mm-hmm. attaching on and it was like starting to gain this momentum and I remember having no idea what the show was about starting the job and I was like okay what it's what oh it's a medical show okay, okay. I literally thought it was a show about a haunted house before I started there I didn't even look I mean yeah. I was so stupid <laughs> and so my boss was like you should watch all the episodes that have already aired so you're up to speed on the stories. And then I was like, oh my God, this show is brilliant. This mm-hmm. is so great. Was that, the, and again, was that the first medical... No, no medical mis- no, 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 medical mystery sort of oh. setup. Is that or, uh, you know, it's I feel a like- good question. I think that ER and stuff like that sometimes had little components, but this no, but was House very is entirely much different. to your point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. House was like every this single was, time, there's like, level. oh, wait, 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 let me try this one little, oh, you you accidentally swallowed some toothpaste with this combination of other thing. And, yes. It was know, a detective like, story. Yeah, it was a detective and medical show, yeah. right? Yeah. Incredible it show. Was, it show. was. There was nothing like it. And mm-hmm. I think that that's, that combined, I mean, it was lightning in a bottle. You know, yeah. it was that combined with, you know, David Shore and the writing team were so witty and so smart. Yeah. And then Hugh Laurie just, mm-hmm. you know, so it just so left off the page. It was yeah. just, it was, it was amazing. And it was a, it was such a fun place to work. And it was very inclusive. And again, I would go to set. I would go to all the production meetings. I would go to all the prep meetings. I would, I would do everything. And then my boss decided to leave because he was going to go shoot a pilot. And he was like, I would take you with me. He's like, but you don't want to be a director. He's like, you mm-hmm. want to be a writer. He's like, so I'm walking down the hall to the writer's room and I'm going to tell these guys to hire you. And there were two guys, Russell Friend and Garrett Lerner, who are writing team, who had just been promoted to EPs. So in their budget, they got to have an assistant. So I became their assistant. Wow. And so that was the first mm-hmm. time I actually worked in a writer's room with writers. And they, again, two of the nicest human beings still to this day, dear friends and people who I can call upon for, you know, any advice, anytime. But they really were like, we want you to write. We want mm-hmm. an assistant who wants to be a writer. So you write, you do what you got to do, you know, do your job, but carry on. And from there, I, by then I had, um, 
we were specking TV shows. That's what people wanted to see. So you specking a TV show is basically writing a sample script of an existing TV show. Right. So I wrote, I was working in this show that had medicine and I loved Grey's Anatomy. So I wrote a spec Grey's Anatomy mm-hmm. and that got me into the CBS writing program. So a lot of these, a lot of studios have writing programs. Warner Brothers has one, ABC, you know, NBC, CBS. So I got into the CBS writing program and I would leave early every Thursday and drive over the hill to, you know, CBS over in Studio City. And there was only eight of us. There was four comedy writers and there was four uh, drama writers out of like hundreds and hundreds of submissions. But we got to meet with all of these showrunners, like, you know, Sean Ryan and Glenn Mazzara. It was like, you know, Carlton Cuse came in. It was just like the who's who. It was so Mm -hmm. amazing. And then also through that is how I got my agents because now CBS had already done the hard work of siphoning through people. They're like, we just want you to come meet four drama writers. So of course, all the agencies would come. And that's how I got signed with my first, you know, with my first agent. Man. And they then they helped me get my first writing job on a show called Royal Pains, which a, another medical show, but a medical like kind of more lighter dramedy, you know, mm-hmm. um, on USA. And that's I watched that's most of that first I season. Mm-hmm. I like that show. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what fun. you're working on yeah. right when we met. I, I believe it's yeah. Royal Pains. I think that's yeah, what yeah. yeah. Sage was six months old mm-hmm. when I started that job. You're pumping in your office, and oh you're putting it in the freezer, and you're running back to the writer's room. And I mean, I did all of it. I did it all. That's so amazing. You literally answered my next four questions, which was like, well, well, actually, I do have this particular question. What was the first thing that you wrote that got attention or was actually made that you saw yeah. on screen? So the first thing that got me any attention was the Grey's Anatomy spec, okay. because that got me a lot, you know, studios wanted to meet with me and everybody because that was a huge amazing show and so people knew it so i'd written a sample script so they're like oh my gosh you've captured these characters in this world you know so that Mm -hmm. was great and the first time i saw my name on screen was for royal pains you know for writing a script for that how did that how did that feel yeah it was it was great it was so it was surreal but it was like also i had worked so hard Mm -hmm. i was like yeah yeah, Finally, I deserve like, this. Vince was taking a picture with his camera on the screen, and I'm sure we opened champagne. You That's know, so fun. Um, I was on that show for five seasons, mm-hmm. and our staff pretty much remained the same. And Michael Rausch, who was the showrunner with the creator Andrew Linchuski, they were um, co-show ran it, but they were super like all right, this is your episode. Go to New York, go produce it. Let's, do you have any notes on cuts? You know, are you watching dailies? Like they really wanted you to be a part of the process. Oh, so you, you went to New which York was, for mm-hmm. every now and then. To, yeah. And, yeah. and there's not a lot. lot. I didn't realize, you know, probably then I felt because like everybody got to do that at house. So mm-hmm. I just felt that was the norm. And right. as I became a more of a working writer, I realized that wasn't necessarily the case right. on every show, but I was very fortunate with them. And yeah, so I, I worked with that whole team of writers for five years um and then from there i went to a show called chicago med mm-hmm. uh which is you know so many medical dramas yeah, i know i know and i have zero medical background. i was gonna say like what zero. where are all the where are all the legal dramas for the attorney <laughs> are you looking up all this sort of medical factual stuff as, sure. as, you, as you have to write oh, all this? i was oh, I would assume yeah, that for you... sure i mean i became a, a walking like web md you know yeah <laughs> i was like you got that i was probably starting to diagnose people on the street i'm sure you know <laughs> When I worked at House, the running joke was like, it's not lupus. You know, like everything was like, it's lupus. No, it's not lupus. And so I remember one time I, we, I was not feeling right. I was feeling flushed. I felt like I was getting swollen. I'm Googling my symptoms. I'm like, oh my God, it's, I, I legitimately have lupus. lupus. I have lupus. And I remember calling Vince and he was like, what? I'm like, no, I do not feel great. It turns out I was pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> it's not lupus. It's it not. was not lupus. No, it's way worse. No, I'm just kidding. It was a baby. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Sam. Um, I'm just kidding. We've been talking for a year with our kids. That's true. Hey, workshoppers. So Sam and I decided this week we are going to do a giveaway. The first person who answers a trivia question correctly and sends an email to workshoppingpod, P-O-D, at gmail.com will receive a signed print from Sam's Sam Map collection. The question is this. Where did Simran spend six weeks last summer? Again, email that to workshoppingpod at gmail.com. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It really helps. Thanks again. And thanks, Flynn. 
because I had worked on house and because my spec was a Grey's Anatomy, so there was both medical. So then I went on to Royal Pains, which mm-hmm. had medical. So I was there for five seasons. Then Chicago Med, you know. So it was just like, all right, keep keep on the medical shows. Sure. But my next show after Chicago Med was a show called Conviction, which was. Right. A legal show. Mm-hmm. And that was really great. That was um, created by Liz Friedman, who I'd met on House. It was a producer, um, writer on House. And I remember when she was writing it up, and even just, you know, pitching it and doing stuff, she was like, hey, you used to work in legal. Were you a prosecutor? What were you? I said, yeah. She's like, okay, I have some questions for you. So even <laughs> while she was doing the process of pitching the show and selling the show and outlining the show, she would every once in a while email me or text me. And then when the show got picked up, and I got an opportunity to read it. I was like, Liz, this is so amazing. And she was like, I want you to come work with me. And that was all about overturning convictions, wrongful convictions of people. Mm-hmm. So it was a really uplifting show. You know, it might have started dark by these people who were wrongfully incarcerated. Mm-hmm. But it was a really great, you know, it had a really great message. I think, I don't know, the timing of it was probably just not right. But it was, it was, it was great. It was we such could, a, it was a fun experience yeah. to work yeah. on. Can I ask you a crafting question really quick? Yeah. As, as, as a writer, you, you get the, uh, you get to write the script for an episode, right? And you've, you've written it. What percentage of your original script actually ends up being the show? Like how much of it is changed by the writing room? I can only speak to my experiences yeah, with the showrunners yeah, I've worked wondering. with. I've yeah. worked with, I know plenty of friends who've turned in a script and they may get one round of notes and then the showrunner takes it and then it airs and they're like that sounds familiar oh yeah like my name's on it but i don't really recognize a whole lot right i did not have that experience i mean knock on wood even to this day i've never had that experience um every showrunner i've worked with has you know given notes and been collaborative in the process or like we'll do read-throughs or we'll do you know um just room reads just with writers and you're taking notes and crafting and doing stuff and they'll writers i mean showrunners will take a pass and they'll add their own sprinkles and stuff but i would say that i've been very fortunate that at you, least a good, I want to say, eighty-five to ninety percent of my amazing. stuff is still in the script. That's awesome. I don't understand the world at all, so I'm sorry if that's an no. It's question. a really valid question because it does happen a lot where there are, you know, and every show runs differently, and mm-hmm. every showrunner runs differently, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's not a knock; it's everybody's process. Mm-hmm. I, I've just worked with showrunners who you know, really want, I think, their writers to have more ownership Mm -hmm. and to be part of the process. And I think when you give writers more ownership, they feel proud about it and they want to rise to the occasion and deliver, you know, the best product possible as opposed to like, oh, here's 60 pages. You're going to rewrite it anybody, you know, who cares? Uh, Obviously, you've come up with a story and a structure and and, um, part one, part two, part three. What do you say? The uh, act part. So again, every show is different. I think it also depends on the demand there's a lot of shows that are doing you know 18 to 24 episodes they may not have you know the bandwidth to really Uh, as a group break every episode you know whereas the show i'm on now we do 13 episodes we Mm -hmm. group break everything we really discuss everything we have the luxury of time in that regard to really you know have thoughtful conversation and in-depth conversation because we have a little bit of time Mm -hmm. and do you feel like you're experiences with the showrunners you've worked with do you feel lucky in that do you feel like it's more common to have an experience like yours as a writer or less common overall i feel really fortunate that Mm. i worked with really good people and had really good rapport with them and you know knock on wood like i said it's been a really i've had a really good time and i'm probably having the best time right now on my current show so currently tell us a little bit about the show a little show called manifest (laughs) yes a show called manifest it's um just their third season is going to be premiering april 1st so we're super excited about it i joined the team season two uh the showrunner and creator is jeff rake who is just salt of the earth like seriously one of the finest human beings i've ever known and worked with he's and he's just assembled a really great team of people and he's created this environment where it's very respectful and really freeing to just pitch ideas and they can you know they fall flat on your face but you know (laughs) they were everybody's there to help you get back up and be like you know what maybe there's something in there or or i respectfully disagree but i cannot think of a time when I've been happier. And maybe that also comes with like being older and wiser and like Mm -hmm. more um, feeling more confident in my writing, you know, and all all of those, I think all of those things, those past experiences have helped to -hmm. shape where I am now, Mm -hmm. but it's just been a real, it's been a real joy. And considering that we did the entire writer's room for this season, starting, you know, on zoom, 
it was all we started last june (laughs) yeah in your closet and we we initially (laughs) like you know we got to give up our our writer's room and Mm -hmm. we gave up our office space and everything we're like okay we don't know how long this is going to last and you know and here we are we are prepping our season finale right now in new york and i think a lot of that comes with jeff at the helm being very even keeled you know feeling very positive having a lot of confidence in his writers having a lot of confidence in that we knew the show and you know we were able to give him what he was looking for and even beyond what he was looking for he, he even says that's another great thing about him he's always giving credit to everybody <laughs> except great. himself no oh. you know but like, he's yeah. very yeah. generous in that way there's no ego in that regard it also for the first time probably ever afforded people to be able to zoom in forever they wanted yeah. so for a while i was in south carolina for six weeks last summer we had another writer who was in montana for mm-hmm. six months we have another a writer a couple writers who had gone to hawaii separately um, you know, people were everywhere and we you just made it work, yeah. you know. Do you feel like that's maybe going to stick a little bit with writers' rooms or do you miss um, the being in the room together? Is that something? Is there an energy there? There's that, definitely an energy. I mean, yeah. I, we yeah. all know the answer to that this. Co- so just, 100%. Yeah. Like, yeah. I would never forsake an in-person mm-hmm. writer's room. Yeah. You know, if if they told us tomorrow, you know, everybody is vaccinated, coronavirus is evaporated from the earth, <laughs> we would all run back to a, mm-hmm. a writer's room. Does it afford you liberties now for saying like, hey, I can be out of the writer's room and maybe I can go on vacation with my family for a week and zoom in and it not be feel like this catastrophic thing? Mm -hmm. Maybe. Again, that's all whoever's at the helm. But I think that there might be some more leniency. I think we're all being a lot more compassionate. Mm -hmm. I think that we're all having a little bit more grace and understanding because we've all been basically zoomed into each other's lives. and kids and dogs and you know the laundry is overflowing and you know oh my god there's no wi-fi so i'm gonna go you know zoom in from my car at the donut shop down the street (laughs) like i mean we've all done all of it but you you can't beat the rhythm of it though like i obviously do music writing sessions in zoom and the the worst part about it i think you can relate to this is that no one's in sync Mm -hmm. so like if i sing a harmony or a bass part or something they no one can hear what the the one is you know what i mean Uh. and I, i feel like uh i would assume that's a lot like what you're going through which is you can't you can't feel the timing of of conversation of the way people speak and uh you can't There's hear so people's much, like even just yeah. like little grunts and mm-hmm. oh that was really good or oh you that you know when no reaction happens it's like really hard to tell a lot of it is getting nonverbal cues getting you know feeling somebody's energy you and it not to sound hippy dippy but you can feel people's energy in a room Absolutely. if something is jiving or it's not yeah. if an idea is working you get people's enthusiasm you're like you said if it's crickets is it because your kid just ran in or it, my pitch was totally. a total like you know clunker mm-hmm. you know and it's or did the internet so break for a second yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. self-doubt just yeah. creeps in totally oh <laughs> yeah a hundred percent um can i ask one more craft i know you have a few yeah. more but please okay of course. i have one more craft uh, there's a couple, like a multi-part crafting question, sure. but this is again about what, how you do what you do, which is, okay, so you've, you're on your third season of Manifest, and how, first of all, how many people are in your writing room? Writer's room has, I think I believe our writer's room has nine people. Nine, One is okay. a team. So we have the showrunner, and then there's a number of, you know, there's co-EPs, mm-hmm. then you go to uh, supervising producers, producer, co-producer, Executive story editor, story editor, and staff writer. You're a co-EP on this one, okay. correct? Right. Yes. yes. Okay, so the next part of the question is, you were coming up with this uh, show like that, which is, you know, uh, got a, obviously you got a pretty crazy story arc and you're, and you're developing uh, secrets and mystery and all this sort of stuff over the course of a whole season. So I'm assuming you come up with that first, right? Like what you have to tell tell within the season and where you're going to end up? We have tent poles. We had tent poles. Like we, after season two ended, we did a one week room to kind of pitch out what we thought season three would be okay. so that our showrunner could go to NBC and say, hey, this is what we're thinking. Pick up our show. Okay. And so within that framework, again, like Jeff has created the show in the series. So he actually knows the beginning, middle and end of the series. And he has shared that with us. So okay. Oh, okay. I know how the series is supposed to end. The whole okay. thing. So you know the whole thing. I know how the okay. whole thing is supposed to end. So this is not um, lost. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we know how that's going to end. And we had left, obviously, cliffhangers, right? You mm-hmm. want suspense suspending you into the next season. So we knew where we were leaving off. We knew what we kind of wanted to do. And yep. you know your tent poles. Now, within those, there are many stories that you're breaking as they come. You know, mm-hmm. you're thinking, well, here's my idea about this. Here's how I would love to do this framework. So we knew the marks that we wanted to hit 
in the season as far as like big uh, character or mytholo- mythological card turns as we call them, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, things like that. So how do we get to those things? How do we, you know, how do we shift and shape? And mm. a lot of times, you know, we do these things where we call them passengers of the week and there's a new passenger <laughs> from the plane. And sometimes you're like, you know what? I think it could be really interesting if we introduce this person as like a one-off, but then they come back and you experiment because, yeah. you know, well, there's 191 passengers on that's the plane. A, that's a lot you know, of if characters. If one doesn't work out, great. Maybe somebody else will click. <laughs> We've we've had that with a couple of people, uh-huh. and I think it's going to be super exciting cool. for fans to you know see what we're going to do because I think um, I think it's a really great great season. Yeah. LA is such a, a a giant small town, isn't it? It's yes, I mean yes, it's a perfect description. We have so many people in common. One of which, obviously, is Luna, who's in Manifest, who who we've yeah. known since she was three years old. We have her ukulele sitting right yes. over there. Um, and her mom, Angelina, has been an old, old friend for years. Amazing. And, yeah, I love that. And then Busy, who we've known since Vesper, and her daughter were like little tiny babies. And I remember in 2015, I was working for a showrunner, who you remember, he will remain nameless. And I remember your script coming into my computer. And I'm like, holy shit, because your agent like sent me a bunch of scripts to read. And so I was this like first, you know, round reader for this writer's room. I was, I mean, I was a film and an English major. So of course I might be able to read scripts a little faster. Is it a good story? Is it a crap story? Yours was an amazing story. My question in this story is, do you feel like because so the way that he was running his writer's room I feel like it was very old Hollywood like this mm-hmm. guy would break down the scripts that people spent weeks on and just take over and rewrite everything I'm so curious as to how you feel how Hollywood is evolving I think it's evolving it's evolving a little too slow mm-hmm. for my taste to be perfectly frank I think that yes people say the word diversity and it's that word kind of chaps me sometimes because sure. it's like, oh, we need to hire a diverse writer. Well, a writer is not diverse. A people as mm-hmm. a population are diverse. So for me, it's like, you know, they, they still talk about diversity slots and all sorts of stuff that makes my head explode. Oh, I'm sure. And I've been told that they're like, oh, they already have their woman of color. They already have their person of color. They already, <sighs> and it's just my As if there's, there's a requirement for one yeah. of, of Right. Each. And I think that that tokenism probably some, still exists in Absolutely. many, many writers rooms. I think that the way that changes is when you have more people in power who are of color, mm-hmm. women of color, you know, more BIPOC people that are showrunners that mm-hmm. are, you know, running studios and networks, the yes people who can, who can make those decisions and make those changes. And Mm -hmm. I think that that change, and I'm speaking primarily for not just, that's for the writer's room, but I think that goes for department heads. Mm -hmm. You know, like when people are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, well, we looked, but we couldn't find any BS. You know, you need to look harder because, you know, there are good people for all, who can be, you know, your TB, who can be your head of costumes, who could, you know, be the head of your post, who can be your editors, who could be. So I just feel like if you really want to make that change, you have to be in that position of power to really effectuate that. Mm -hmm. And some people, I think, do it by lip service. And I think there are some people who are really genuinely trying to change the tide. There's still not enough BIPOC showrunners and creators. And even though we have now how many different platforms to create original content, which is amazing, right? We've got streaming and cable and premium cable and network and all sorts of stuff. You know, you can do it like on your phone, but it's, again, I think it's uh, slowly but surely. Slowly but surely. (laughs) Is that something that you see yourself moving towards in the future I would love to I would love to you know create my own show and Mm -hmm. run it you know someday I think and there are some people who don't want Mm -hmm. to some people who enjoy being in in rooms working over other people and stuff I I would really love to try I think Liz Friedman said something it's like being murdered by your own dreams or something (laughs) like she has a really (laughs) I like that (laughs) careful what you wish for I was just about to say Um, that careful what you wish for (laughs) But, um, yeah, but I mean, I I still, it would be really great to create a world and, you know, to run a room and to, you know, do all that kind of stuff. I mean, I essentially run the room now. I'm, you know, I'm the co-number two on the show. Right. And we run the room. But creating your own 
coming up with a character birthing your own yeah. baby you know? but also yeah. hiring your own people like yeah. it's, yeah. it's this is like your baby a hundred percent I would assume though you've got quite a few things sitting around in your head at this mm-hmm. point that you could turn into something right like I do I yeah. have some I have some development in progress not all that I can talk about of course but, you know of I've, course, yeah. I've been fortunate to to be able to do stuff like that I mean I last year I I wrote a feature for Paramount but I was you know outlining it and writing it and doing it and again that was the benefit of working on Manifest which was 13 episodes that it allowed me as that show was wrapping up to really dive into and turn in a script and you know get that ready and mm-hmm. you know we'll see hopefully the people at Paramount actually make it so yeah I was going to ask you if you've only done TV so far, but yeah, that was my first feature again. Mm -hmm. And that was, that relationship came about from when I was on the good doctor, Mm -hmm. uh, Seth Gordon, who's a director who very well known, you know, he's done a gazillion pilots and features. He came, he'd shot the pilot and he came back to shoot another episode in the middle of the season. And it ended up being the script that I had written. And so, you know, as you do, you're like prepping, you're like, Oh, let's go grab dinner and get to know one another and that kind of stuff. And I told him my background that I was a lawyer and he was like, Oh my God, I have this book that we've optioned the rights to. And I'm set to direct and we're looking for a writer. And he brought me into the fold because I mean it feels like TV and film are two totally different tracks Mm -hmm. and they don't really cross over all that much you know there's very few writers who do both and he was again like a great champion of mine really like very supportive of me and of my writing and you know I did the bake-off which is (laughs) where you're basically trying to you know pitch against other people to get the job I just I just went in and pitched my little heart out and they said okay it's so much more challenging i would think to write a movie than a tv i mean tv you got so much time (laughs) yeah it it was it was challenging i mean it's i think in an interesting way i was intimidated but then when i was like oh it's just breaking a really long episode Mm -hmm. you know it's like breaking Mm -hmm. a two-parter you know it's 120 pages (laughs) instead of 60 so i really i think because TV writers are so organized. It was very easy for me to chart it out so that when I pitched it to them, I had already thought up beginning, middle, and end of what the feature was going to be. And then as I was going through the process with them, I said, I'm going to outline this thing. Do you want to see my outline? They're like, what? Like, feature people don't ever share outlines with us. I said, well, (laughs) why wouldn't I I want to share that with you? Because as to the producers, as producers, I want your feedback because if I'm not going the way you want and, you know, we can make this better, let me fix that in the outline stage before I write, you know, a whole movie. And they were like, oh, okay. okay. (laughs) And so I gave them a super detailed outline and they were like thrilled. And I think that just made our collaborative process that much better. You know, if you could speak to a a young writer fresh out of grad school or undergrad, whatever, not even studied a lick of writing in their life, but happens to have a lot of talent, what would you get? What advice would you give? Um, to navigate (laughs) the dream of becoming a a TV or a film writer. You know, I would first tell them to come to LA, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's taking that leap of faith. I think being here is super important. Mm -hmm. And I would tell them that there's no one path. That's what I love about this town. There was no one path Mm -hmm. to getting into becoming a writer, getting into this world. There are people who have, you know, we can go around a writer's room of nine people and everybody's story is different. Yeah. I'm a big advocate for assistance being paid a living wage and, you know, really being treated well because I was that assistant. I understand what that's like. And again, I think that the more people in charge who are willing to do that, we're all going to be better for it. We're going to get mm-hmm. better stories for it, giving everybody a shot. I mean, I'm a mentor right now with this group called The Salon, which is really focusing on you know, helping um, young emerging Southeast Asian talent to break into Hollywood because, you know, we want to see more. When I came here, I didn't know a lot of people. I got to know that. It's a lot of a hustle, but it would have been really great to know other Southeast Asian um, actors, directors, producers, Mm -hmm. you know, writers. I know more of them now, but there's still so many that I don't. So for me, I feel like creating that community for them to feel like they're in a safe space that they can come and and ask us questions and mm-hmm. we can try to help get them jobs because so many of these jobs are not coming on a Craigslist thread or something. <laughs> you know, it's it's not it's not posted on the internet. It's right. all word of mouth. Right. A rising tide lifts all boats. So let's let's help each other along and 
and I think we will all benefit both as fans and audience members with mm-hmm. a more inclusive content from from different voices. Is this a new um, mentorship program that you're part of? It is. Yeah, it just started. This is their first one. Are you a creator of this mentorship program, or are you just asked not, to be a mentor? I wasn't one of the creators of it. I was um, Rena Singh, who is an executive uh, who was at 20th, mm-hmm. is like part of ABC, helped you know co-create it, and she asked. She said, "Would you be willing to be a mentor? You know, we'll." you and they they got I don't know 800 plus submissions and they were very careful in selecting 23 people again wow. from producing directing acting writing like different realms of what people want to do in the industry and pairing them with people who are already established in the industry to like just kind of be sounding boards and you know help them navigate so I have I have an amazing mentee and you know we we have zooms and we mm-hmm. you know I give her feedback and if I see something interesting like if there's you know writing programs or whatever I'm always emailing her I'm like probably another pushy Indian parent (laughs) here apply here do this God your story is really fascinating and really inspiring I can't believe how much we talked about the legal world before we even got to to writing like you you really (laughs) went there you know I know we got to wrap up but um Mm -hmm. You have an amazing fallback job. Do you know what I mean? Like you really, you really nailed it with that because you could, you really could try something really crazy and creative and just go and try this. Oh my God, I don't know if it's going to work. I'm going to move to LA. Oh darn, I have to go back and be a lawyer. You know what I mean? Like that's amazing. Like a lot of people don't have that sort of security, that comfort of knowing that I, there's this job waiting for me that actually is, could be very successful and I can make a lot of money doing this and provide, you know? It's pretty for sure, crazy. For sure. Yeah, but a, and, but and a like fallback said, you know, plan that you worked your ass off for. <laughs> yeah, true. You know? Yeah, exactly. And, and deserve. Yeah, I don't mean to make it sound simple. No, no, no. And I yeah. didn't mean to minimize yeah. what you just said. I know what said, you mean. But you worked your ass off for. And without that legal, yeah. without that law degree, who knows if you would have actually gotten the initial totally. assistant job. Because like, hey, I got a law sure. degree. I, I graduated from law school. Yeah. I, I am an adult. <laughs> Samron, you're the best. Okay, oh, we wait. have one last, last question. Last question. You ask it this time. What is your definition, your personal definition of success? Success to me is really about personal contentment. It's not about a dollar sign. It's not about, because clearly I I was making decent money and I was miserable. I always joke, I took the 85% cut and I was like infinitely happier. So mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, you know, finding if you are fortunate enough, and I know not everybody is, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to do what they love. And, you know, and I'm sure there are plenty of times where I complain and bitch and moan about my job, but I do feel like I am so fortunate. I still feel like I am Charlie who got the golden ticket and is going into Willy Wonka's factory. I feel like I really, I get, I still get goosebumps driving onto a studio lot. I feel very fortunate. So yeah, contentment. And whether that means you have contentment being the best barista ever or being a painter and you may not be making a whole ton of money, but you are sharing a part of you with the world in a way that you want to. I think that if you can be, if you can be content, you know, that's that's more that's more than enough and i know that it may sound a little hokey and it's like well you know that doesn't put food on the table as mm-hmm. probably my parents would say but i think that you know if you can if there is some if you can find some seed of that in whatever you're doing in your life and success is not just about a job it's about family and friendship and you know and sometimes that is the thing that keeps you afloat uh samran thank you so much that was just beyond fabulous to talk to you and i'm sorry sometimes i just ramble no that's what that's we want, what we want. You know? thank yeah. you seriously for sharing with us no thank um, you for asking me this was this was a super treat it was super fun thanks for listening see you next week